Hello and welcome to the Yoga Syndicate. This episode is called What is Yoga? Ellen and Ellis conducting this episode on this vast subject of yoga as such in light of what it is all about. Ellen, what is yoga? <laughs> What is yoga? I think that depends very much on who you ask. So we could say roughly that yoga is how we are presented with yoga in the West as some kind of psychophysical exercise or mindful exercise. We could also say that yoga is one of the philosophical schools of India, one of the darshanas. And we can also say that apart from being a philosophical school, it's also a collection or a manifested collection of practices that has occurred on the Indian subcontinent throughout hundreds of years and a tradition that has uh, continued in uh, Tibet and you actually find yoga in many of the of the Indian uh, Tibetan traditions. You mean thousands of years or hundreds of years? Well, that's a good question. We're actually not sure about exactly how old yoga is. And that also depends on what you define as yoga. If we look at the physical postures, they're probably not that old. But um, at the moment, there is a lot of research going on on this uh, subject as to how, how old is yoga and there are shared there are different uh, opinions about how old yoga is we can't really know hmm uh, is it is it so important to know i mean if we back up and just give it some thought i mean yoga the definition as such uh in some sort of dictionary or or in some sort of essay. I mean, what what is what is actually what is it we're actually talking about? Yoga. What is it? That's a good question. I think many times we uh, attempt to discuss yoga, but we don't really discuss uh, what is it we're talking about. What yoga or which yoga is it we are talking about? Are we talking about the the Indian tradition? Are we talking about yoga as it is practiced in the West? Are we talking about the philosophy of yoga? Or what are we actually talking about? That's something I think we need to define before we engage on a discussion of yoga. So there's more... There's more than one yoga, is that what there's, you're saying? Yeah, that's what I'm saying. There's definitely more than one yoga. Um, there is one way that yoga has been uh, uh, um, presented in the West, but uh, that is not the full story. I mean, you have yoga not just in the in the Hindu tradition that we often associate with yoga, but you have yoga also in the Muslim tradition, you have it in the Buddhist tradition, um, you have it in the Jain, in the Shaivite tradition. You have many variations of yoga. And, and, you know, we live in 2020 and, you know, yoga seems to be sort of like a really nice sort of, uh, you see someone in warrior pose and you see someone holding a water bottle with really nice uh, fancy tights on uh, and someone that looks... You know, after I've done so much yoga myself, I see that that person's never done yoga, but they're casting an image that yoga is beauty. I mean, um, does someone 
uh, or do we in the Western world, do we, do we have any space? Uh, do we have any, not just understanding, but do we have a capacity to even discuss uh, or listen to a, a podcast about what is yoga on a deeper level? I mean, uh, mm -hmm. yoga is for, uh, for the average person something that is just a matter of running off to a certain location and you know, hoping for the best and clapping yourself uh, on the shoulder afterwards and saying, uh, I had a great workout. Mm. Well, I think perhaps we need to, to separate uh, between how yoga is presented in the media, which is very much beautiful women in white, uh, <laughs> immaculate tights with carrying water bottles and how yoga is for the, the common man and the common woman, you know. And I think it's uh, it's very interesting to the fact that yoga has spread so much in the West. So there must be a reason for that. Uh, there must be something, some need that yoga is fulfilling in the Western society, something that has been lacking in our culture. When you look at how many millions of people who are practicing yoga these days, as opposed to maybe just 20 or 30 years ago. So... Um, Apart from this beauty industry, of course, yoga has become widespread, so it's picked up by uh, all kind of uh, commercial uh, industries and uh, there are yoga artifacts and tights and clothing and that's just because that's what happens when yoga spreads in the capitalist society. But apart from that, I think there are so many yoga studios where where people uh, where people go to have a very normal ordinary encounter with their bodies and minds and uh, i think that is very that is something that is worth looking at what what need does yoga fulfill apart from uh, looking beautiful and giving this an image of tranquility and and inner peace that that might just be uh, not even skin deep well, it seems like you know if you consider Patanjali and and some of the uh, the other greats, uh, you know Buddha amongst others, just yoga uh, in and of itself is is really nothing new. I mean the 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 attributes and the the tools and the explanations and the writings of yoga uh, uh, interpreted by amongst others Vyasa and others. Um, they lent to the same everyday worries and considerations of purification, being content, and getting on with your day uh, in a sustainable uh, but more focused way. I mean, it's same, same, but different. We're just, you know, mm -hmm. some shy two, three thousand years after the fact, and yoga uh, in its traditional sense is saying the same thing, isn't it? I think it's both. I think it's both same, same, and I think it's also different. When, uh, as I said, when yoga comes to the West, when yoga is uh, adopted by the West, it also uh, fulfills a gap here in our society. It's something we need. So if you ask, uh, if you ask the common man or woman or or uh, what yoga is, or if you if you even read description of of yoga classes or the benefits of yoga, you will often see that 
Yoga is explained as the union of mind and body. And, and what does that tell us? That is not an issue with Patanjali or anyone on the, on the Indian, uh, uh, in the, within the Indian uh, tradition. Why unify body and mind? They are both uh, parts of uh, Prakriti. They are both uh, parts of the material reality. That's, that's not what you're searching. That, that's what no, not where you, you're, that's not what you're attempting to do with yoga. But uh, that merely reflects something that is missing in the West, I think, that we have a separation of mind and body. We are not, um, we are not in, inhabiting our, our bodies in the, in the same way as, as people do in other societies, or we have forgotten it. So I think in, un, in order to understand yoga, we need to look at our own culture and our own philosophy. We might think that, um, oh, everything is the same all over the world, but it's actually not. I mean, are we doing yoga to have a, a better rebirth or to improve our karma? Are we really? Are we, do we have the same concerns as people had at uh, Patanjali's time? Do we want to uh, withdraw from the world and abandon family and possessions and be real renunciants because that is really whom the the yoga sutras are, are written for so i think we need to look at our own society our own understanding of yoga and then we can maybe try to see that um, the ancient traditions gives another explanation of reality of the self of who we are and we shouldn't try to interpret everything through the lens of our own understanding. Well, so you're basically saying that there's a certain adaptation based on time, space, place, person, surroundings that would would sort of not dictate, but sort of inspire the need of that particular moment in what you're doing or the, the type of yoga you're doing or what you're getting out of it so i mean i mean i i see that when someone closes their eyes and you know upon opening and they don't have the possessions that we might have in the west so they have perhaps more of a a profound divine you know five in the morning feeling before they head off and you know um and and walk the fields with their cattle uh, there would be a different kind of yoga happening than than someone you know who's working on Fifth Avenue in New York City and is mm -hmm. running through Jiva Mukti and uh, and has that shower on their way to work after they had a, a, a wonderful you know spiritual warrior class and you know I think what I get you know confused about in terms of what is yoga in relation to this adaptation concept of both past present and and being present i'm i think one thing that you know i'm i'm a bit of a visual guy so when i walk by a place at least you know when i'm in the states you know you see a big sign and it says gas so you know there you can you can you know you, there you can fill up your, your your gas tank with gas and more than likely you can go in and buy yourself a soda pop along the way but right next to it is some sort of strip mall and 
you know, it's almost like people don't have time anymore to to study what the name is. You just see a big sign nowadays, often in the U.S. of A., where it says yoga. And then, you know, what are you getting? Are you getting filled up or are you filling up this, as you sometimes put it, this uh, this narrative, this illusionary narrative at the, that uh, I'm doing something good and this must be good because it's yoga. Is, is yoga a sort of one-stop shop for making yourself feel uh, like, you know, you're crossing off the box? I do yoga, in other words, equals I'm a good person. Or what is yoga in that sense of, you know, I mean, I keep putting this back into sort of an American point of view um, or Western point of view. I mean, let's back up a bit. How did yoga come to the West? Can you can you shed some light on this Vivekananda <laughs> guy? Who was this guy? Yes, yoga was uh, introduced to the to the West by actually quite uh, very few personalities who uh, who had a big impact on spreading yoga in the West. So, as you mentioned, of course, we had uh, Vivekananda, who was an extremely learned and intelligent individual, uh, who uh, s had his famous speech in the World Congress of Religions. And uh, after that, he traveled throughout uh, the United States. He traveled to Europe. He uh, he must have made quite an impression on, on people because he he became he befriended the uh, elite, the intelligentsia, the uh, the artists um, uh, at that at his time. And uh, there was also, you know, he was also, we could, you could say, the right guy at the right time because there was all, already an, an interest in the West for, the, for Orientalism, for uh, the, the wisdom of the, uh, of the Orient, so to say. So uh, the West was uh, maybe a bit in search for something new. You know, the church was losing its grip yeah. on, on society and... Uh, Anything that came from uh, from India seemed very attractive, and uh, and then you had this charismatic Vivekananda who established uh, Vedanta societies um, throughout the states and and Europe, and uh, and he actually presented his version of uh, yoga according to his philosophy. It was not, uh, as we know it, a, a posture-based, a very physical version of yoga. For him, it was more the yoga of knowledge, the jnana yoga. Uh, for him, the culmination of Indian thought was uh, Advaita Vedanta, and he presented it in that way, as if the uh, all the Indian philosophical schools had come to one resolution that was... Uh, embodied in the Advaita Vedanta. So that's very much how uh, how yoga was uh, presented in the West. And then you had a bit later, you had the, the great proponents of physical yoga, um, the uh, students of Krishnamacharya. You had uh, BKS Iyengar, you had Desika Char and Patavi Joyce, who uh, promoted a very physical yoga. And uh, with um, with Iyengar, yoga got connected with uh, the medical benefits of yoga, and it was presented as something that was uh, kind of separate from 
from a religion and it had uh, it had very tangible physical benefits and uh, it also but at the same time it had the attraction of leading to some kind of realization of the of the soul yeah i i, I get that and and i like i like how those three students sort of branched out and sort of covered the basis of uh of of approaching their discipline again same same but different and um but when i back up to vivekananda and his uh his coming to the united states in the late 1890s um you know i, I can't help but think how he, he got there <laughs> and how he even knew you know in a time and age without you know without the internet and and communications as such or or transportational infrastructure this very you know astute indian man had made himself uh aware of uh, a wonderful you know gathering in chicago where he then brought this as you say this uh this this knowledge yoga uh, of knowledge not just knowledge of yoga um forward and like you said he was the right man at the right time but considering that he was the right man that had the right means mm. and nowadays you know in the west you see a lot of yoga in a materialistic form sort of there's almost not a a rising in that materialism behind or through yoga at least in the united states as such or in other first world countries but you see you, you you see that something got washed out um along the way and did it did it also happen because maybe this vivekananda who really brought it initially to the states uh had brought a certain level of you know just like the sanskrit language in and of itself it's a very uh, you know you can you can almost put it into the landscape of harvard oxford uh, you know there were I wouldn't say it would, was arrogant, but it was quite respected. There was quite a lot behind it that made it um, not for the common man. I don't know. It mm -hmm. somehow seems like it, you know, when Vivekananda came and made his presentation, maybe, do you think he was too careful? Or did he come and just say it like it was? Or was he being very, uh, I mean, neither of us were alive to have seen it. But how do you think? Uh, how do you think the presentation went? It obviously went well because... You know, half the world is doing yoga and talking mm. about it. But again, do people know what yoga is? I think there are different strands of yoga. And, mm. and one strand of yoga we can certainly study through the yoga literature, through the yoga sutras and uh, through other scriptures on yoga. So we have this, like, uh, as you say, the, the part of yoga that's contained in the Sanskrit language that has been studied in, uh, you know, the institutions of, of higher learnings and belong to the elite. But that's not the full story of yoga because you also have the student uh, or the guru-student tradition, you know, that is not so occupied with, uh, with scriptural knowledge that just preserves the knowledge in the passing from the master to the students throughout a long lineage. And uh, these lineages are actually not so concerned with studying scripture. That's not what yoga is about. 
and uh, within these traditions you also have yoga that is not so um, sanitized that has more what we call left-handed practices that uh, belongs to a tradition of uh, those who uh, separated from society um, all the way from the shramana tradition and the siddha tradition of uh, of india so i think this part of yoga has been uh, left out by by vivekananda and and other proponents it's maybe something that um, they were a little bit um, ashamed of that there were these um, um, controversial practices going on but uh, we should be aware that that's also one part of yoga and the path of yoga where you uh, get through the equanimity of mind you sort of um, pass through all your assumptions and your concepts of reality by by doing the opposite by going against the the uh, cleanliness and uh, other typical uh, brahminical uh, features of indian society so you go against that um, you deliberately break with what is accepted to to get to the state of uh, of uh, no taste or uh, equanimity yeah i mean you know sharing this podcast uh with you um and not being able to do a fraction of what i i see you do um you know physically and i i have a lot of respect for you ellen johannesson not only for what i see visually but you know what i hear and luckily i've gotten to know you well enough to know that you know you're not just a wake up in the morning, you know, check off the box. I did it. I'm done. And, um, you know, there you go. Uh, the rest of the day is uh, empty minded. I see that you you really have uh, accomplished, at least from my standpoint, a real, not only understanding, but a like a, a sort of, yeah, a, a thirst, a, continu a continued thirst for wanting to not only understand more, but even going back to what you already know and listening to how others uh, interpret it as I, I hear different, you know, audio files that you're skimming through. And, and I think to myself, well, you know that, but still you, you seem to be very focused on how others are also uh, adapting to these general far out concepts of, of what yoga is but if you if you know if you take away it, these three to five thousand years of of what we can trace back and take away the 130 years uh, uh or 125 years back when vivekananda had brought and an understanding to the west that we're we're still uh, fortunately and sometimes regrettably uh, a part of um what is yoga for you i mean just uh you live in Kathmandu. You practice uh, uh, yoga on a, on a very high level uh, in terms of ash, Ashtanga yoga. But you know, yoga for you. Just don't don't think. Just you know, answer. What is yoga for you, Ellen? You want to say? Um, I think yoga for me goes way back. Actually, it goes all the way back to my dancing days. And uh, during my dancing days. I was lucky enough to be a, a part of a very experimental school of contemporary dance, actually, the School for New Dance und Wickeling in Amsterdam. 
Now, this was before everything became so streamlined and you uh, gathered all the uh, art schools into one big modern building. And uh, as for us, we, we were allowed to sort of do our things on a, on a little... Uh, not a little actually on this we had these huge spacious studios by the canal and we experimented and um, we did things in dance which was very focused on the embodiment of uh, we had classes in something called body mind centering so the uh, the ideology of the school was kind of healing the gap between the mind and the body as it has been present in the in the west since the, the time time of enlightenment <laughs> misnomed enlightenment because this is really the time when the church and the and the sciences parted ways and we became so damn rational to the extent that we we separated from the body and we put maybe too much trust in the mind in our intellect and um, as uh, the industrial society uh, developed, we grew further and further apart from our bodies. We became urbanized, we didn't belong to any society, we didn't work the uh, earth, the soil anymore, we didn't listen to our bodies, so we developed this big gap between the mind and the body. We tended to look at the body as something that should serve us, like a machine that was kind of self-running, when it broke down we went to the doctor and we had it fixed there was not the kind of engagement or embodiment anymore so uh, it goes all the way back to there to to the the philosophy and the practices i learned during my my dance days that i'm really grateful for and uh, i can see how uh, with yoga that concern has sort of spread throughout society like once again we realize there is something missing here we are so separated from our bodies we are so used to just having them fixed to train them and have our keep our well-trained body as uh, some kind of uh, attribute or thing that we can show off and we get lost in that so um, from my point of view um, the opportunity to learn yoga and to uh, spread yoga and teach yoga and expound yoga is really linked to, to those uh, early dance days. Um, so, um, of course, yoga is something I've been doing. I've been doing my practice more or less every day for the last 25 years. So... Um, Yoga is a is a way to to stay in touch, but of course, I I will also say that is there is mastery involved. There is a great satisfaction in in uh, mastery, but it's a kind of mastery that comes from a long and consistent practice that is very satisfying. Yeah, well, if you know, if you if you have a certain individual that's now we can take me for example who's 53 that that has mastered different things along the way but suddenly has this affliction and this uh desire to become yeah we all somehow see something being performed and we we would just love to do that but time isn't exactly on our side then what what would for the average person 
a certain mastery include when wanting to do a sadhana, which means a daily practice with yoga, um, in terms of you know penetrating just ever so slightly, scratching at the surface of what is yoga. If you're new to it, you're 53, um, and you feel like, oh, I'm so ready to be enlightened. This seems to have worked after the few classes I've attended, and I want more. Um, is it? Can is there anything to be mastered? I think absolutely. I think when you can, when you can move your awareness around the body at will. I think that's so amazing. And as a teacher, I can see it happening in students, you know. I can see that little lengthening of the spine that comes with the inhalation. I can see that awareness is there, that awareness has reached some spaces that were devoid of awareness before. And I think that's an amazing thing. That's an inner universe opening up. Is the most beautiful thing as a teacher, and I don't care whether the person can do TikToks and backflips or whether they can just, you know, breathe through their spine. I mean, moving their awareness around their body at will. Mm. Um, I've seen it and I've felt it, but it's so few and far between. And when I do it, I've understood then that it's possible, but then there comes something else that I find very regrettable with yoga, and that is, is that this moving your awareness around your body at will is not al always so pleasant when you move your awareness around your mind in retrospect, thinking of everything you've not done along the way. All of the times I've moved my body around without understanding that that it that I had control over it. I've just been acting upon everyone else's wishes, acting upon lots of things that I've called necessary that that haven't been. Is yoga then in light of this subject, what is yoga? Is it a tool to bring uh, not only a focus but practice through focus or focus through practice? forward in terms of you know you know I've, I've heard different you know famous um yogis say things like you know yoga and meditation is not to control the mind and body it's to create a space that you don't let your mind and your body control you um is that what it's it's all about is honing in on on being operative of actually functioning and not just you know, like a robot, just sort of doing things automatically? Or how do we tune in? Will yoga help us tune in? Um, I think, of course, we all have uh, habitual patterns and we all work on autopilot a lot of the time. That's how we actually survive. We can't be... Uh, uh, it would be very irrational for us to be uh, so aware of uh, everything all the time. Um, but uh, from what you're saying, it brings to mind what one of my dance teachers said, actually. 
he said uh, uh, there are no habits there are just moments of uh, lesser awareness so I think we I think we we could bring awareness into uh, any moment but then we can consider well is it really necessary is it really necessary and uh, um, I I can I can see what you what you say when you say that uh, uh, well I have spent so much time not being aware or using my body in a certain way and I could say the same of course it took me it took a long time I spent uh, I spent time trying to do traditional dance training where you there are certain things you try to get your body to do. And um, then I moved in a, in a different uh, direction and it just took time to, uh, uh, to get to a different place, to see that, to, to switch your, uh, to, to, to switch your aims around to uh, what can I make my body do, to uh, what, can I, uh, what can I experience with my body. And also, of course, uh, as a performer, from what can I show people to what do I let people see? Mm. So, um, so, so with the samskara, right? Mm. These habitual sort of, uh, you know, in a way, we're we're looking for people, or in yoga, one is hoping that you'll find a certain routine. Mm. Routines are things people know very well through their bad habits because they've kept a routine of having a bad habit. So if you were to flip that over like a pancake mm -hmm. and make it into a good habit or at least explain to people that, you know, there there is not only a physical but a, uh, a, a mental or a sort of adhering, connective, sort of enlightening, manifesting feeling of 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 that the mind and the body are connected when it comes to yeah bad habits that your mind strays that you know with this chitta vritti nirodha that the mind and these waves they need to be restrained and contained um do you find that the physical part of yoga which seems to be so prevalent in the west is something that also assists and helps the mind calm down i mean the both serve each other don't they the mind and body yeah i think in the west we we have to remember that we have a very different starting point from what people have in the east we have a different relationship to our bodies so i think that's part of why yoga has become so enormously popular is that we have something to work through with our bodies we need to start with embodying our bodies really living in our bodies because we have forgotten how to do that and you will see with with meditation typically when the westerners sit to meditate even that is so difficult just to sit and relax and be present there are so many physical obstacles just in meditation and calming down and uh, i notice it very well from from living in nepal i have lived in nepal for nine years and i can count on my one hand how many times i've seen a nepali person rush it's three times three times in nine years i have seen somebody 
rushing to cross the street or catch, catch a bus. Otherwise, they don't compromise. They don't compromise. They don't rush. They don't rush when they work in a restaurant or want to have something done. It's not worth it. It seems like it's not worth it to sort of leave your body and mind behind and just go into this automatic gear. You just always take your time. You do things in the time it takes. Is this hesitation to go uh, ahead of themselves that we are so happy to do in the in the West? We just get the work done. We leave our minds at the door and we get the work done and then we think we'll catch up later, but we actually never catch up. Oh, I love the way you uh <clears throat> I love the way you paint a picture of uh of the the prevalence of of never catching catching the bus in our own in our on our own freeway of uh, of thought and reason. Um as we're rushing off to to catch nothing, uh, all the while you have someone, for example, in Nepal. You know, the topic today is what is yoga. Maybe yoga is not studying it at all, but practicing it all the time. Mm. Ideally, I think yoga is uh, about practicing it all the time, not just the time that we spend on the mat. So. Hopefully, it also has a, an effect that we can bring into our lives. And um, I think people do that as, as far as they... Uh, just the fact that people get in touch with their breath, you know. It's such a powerful tool. Once you know that, that when you're in a stress situation, you can just, you know, you can just take a deep breath. You can feel your body. You can feel your feet. You can exhale. You're standing on the ground. When you're doing some heavy work, you just breathe a little bit deeper, and then it's it's uh, it's okay, it's easier. So, um, well, I hope that people can bring it into their lives. If not, at, at least they can be aware for for the time that they're in the class, and and maybe that will have some health benefits. Well, uh, you know, by the way, when you speak of health, there's a lot of people that say that you know, in yoga, or in general that as long as you're not sick, people think they're healthy. Mm. Like, I haven't been cast to the wolves, and I am not sick, so therefore I'm healthy. But someone, you know, most people have forgotten the whole concept of vitality and what vitality can open up. You know, and you're always using uh, different analogies with the, the keyhole <laughs> versus opening a door. Vitality uh, is opening the door. Not being sick is just one small keyhole of looking at a wall with a little opening uh, of light or a possibility. But, you know, um, will yoga as such as we know it in the West, just to take the West for the time being, will will it open up the door? Um I think um, I just want to uh, go back a little bit to what you were saying that uh, uh, we think we're healthy because we're not sick, but we're not actually vital. Well, that has to do with our whole culture. And that's what I mean when I say that we have to study where we're coming from before we start to approach a different tradition. So when you look at the um, uh, medical and uh, psychological sciences of uh, of the west what are they based on 
Medicine is basically based on cutting open dead body, the study of dead body, cutting them open, looking at what's inside, how does it possibly function. Whereas in the in the East, the medical science is based on the living body. What energies are in motion? How can we increase the vitality? And uh, in the same way, our psychology is based on the study of the cases where psychology, where, where our psyche goes wrong, where we are mentally ill. We, are, we have been preoccupied with uh, looking at the extreme cases of the sick mind. And there is, uh, th there has not been up until now so much research on well, what what constitutes a, a healthy mind? How can we be more happy? How can we raise the level of well-being and and health and vitality? So these, but these days there is actually, uh, <laughs> for the first time, there is research into how can we get more, how can we have happiness? How can we increase our our well-being? And uh, uh, we have maybe thought until now that, okay, we are what we are. We have our basic mind, we have our level, we're okay, we have our level of uh, being okay or not being sick. Uh, but we can, we could absolutely increase our level of, uh, of happiness, of well-being. And a, a lot of these sciences we find in the, in the Eastern traditions, where you don't have such a, a low level that you're psychologically okay as long as you're not insane. But um, the sky is the limit. Enlightenment is the limit. You go beyond everything. There's no limit to how much you can increase your well-being, your wisdom and your understanding. Yeah, I mean, that, that sounds kind of groovy, but for the average person, they're still thinking... Um, maybe a little more dualistic, right? Like uh, this versus that, here versus there, far versus near, right versus wrong, um, uh, sick versus healthy. I mean, yoga seems to cover the basis of not analyzing, uh, but sort of falling, not in between the right versus wrong, but not analyzing anything, just, just being. I mean... You have this whole approach of samadhi, which is, you know, where even happiness is not a goal, where you're just, you're in a state of pure and utter being. Um, that sounds fancy, but I mean, have you experienced samadhi, Helen? Uh, I think there's a there's a whole lot of this discussion to uh, to figure out what uh, what constitutes happiness. Um, samadhi. Well, I um, uh, I can only refer back to uh, Patanjali and as well as the Buddhist traditions that says uh, enlightenment is actually a, a a part of our mind at every moment. It's uh, often portrayed in this analogy that the the mind is like the sky, like the clear blue sky. And all our thoughts and concepts are the clouds that gather in the sky, and and sometimes the the sky gets so covered with with clouds that it's completely thick and dark, and we can't see the sky. But the the sky is still always there. 
Um, so uh, I think we all at at moment in in fractions of a second, perhaps we we sure we we discover uh, we have moments of uh, samadhi. Mm, yeah. Well, I would I would agree. Uh, I was just wanting to hear how you uh, react to this this really Lord elusive concept of you know. That nothingness is everything, and you know a certain feeling behind a nothing state could be something comfortable. When we're so darn practical in our in our thinking, in wanting to make sense out of everything, I'm. I know um, there's not many Westerners at some you know training center or strip mall that go to a place where there's a big sign that says yoga outside. That are being reminded about these uh, traditional uh, sort of writings and sutras, um, you know, regarding both suffering and understanding that suffering is also um, part of understanding what enlightenment is. It's like, do you feel that it's important to suffer or to acknowledge suffering? as a part of life in order to acknowledge the contrary, the opposite in enjoying enlightenment? Do you think suffering is is number one part of life and do you think it's necessary to perhaps seek out or understand how you've suffered or should we not put too much focus on the concept of suffering? I think definitely the spiritual traditions they start with the assessment of our human situation as uh, suffering when we're talking about suffering we're talking about the Sanskrit word dukkha which constitutes all situations or all states of being that is unenlightened so it covers everything from from real grave intense suffering to just a slight boredom or dissatisfaction so if we if we look at life in general it's it's termed as dissatisfaction dissatisfactory that's just the nature of thing things and it has its courses because we are running after things in an impermanent constantly changing world we are desperately trying to hold on to something to stabilize it and uh, whatever we grasp to, it will change. And that in itself will cause suffering. So unless we realize that, we will just keep going in the same direction as we have been going. We'll run after all the things that we will, that we think will satisfy us forever, that we think will obtain some kind of happy ever after, if we only get this, if we only get that. If we don't realize that this can, this can actually never satisfy us because things are constantly changing. We're trapped in what we call samsara. So I think the acknowledgement of our situation is really important. Yeah, well, you know, the kleshas are talking about this, uh, this, uh, this attachment and detaching, and you know, you have a lot of this uh, non-grasping elements in the the niyamas. I was just thinking, um, in the Western world, then we must have definitely lots of artifacts around us to make us understand the sutras, perhaps 
even more directly than perhaps uh, in the East where maybe there are less focus on materialism. Uh, so, so in a way we should be really good at yoga uh, from a traditional standpoint because you know when you go through the yamas the niyamas the gunas and and the sutras as such you know you would uh, and even the buddhist yoga philosophy of you know uh, of all these great noble truths you would definitely think that in the west that we we definitely have what it takes to to define ourselves or to acknowledge and identify with with which yoga we need to not necessarily choose but how to practice uh, and use these tools in order to to either become more enlightened or to acknowledge our suffering or to 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 find an accord within us that that not only works for us but that makes us understand how we work in relation to 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 others. Uh, do you think we should be better at understanding the the more profound? Um, aspects of yoga from a traditional sense or do you think people don't really have the time to to, to dive in i think we are still uh, pretty much trapped in the west i think we're still pretty much uh, under this uh, illusion that uh, there can be a, a sense fulfillment there can be a fulfillment through getting what we want through getting the the right partner, the right job, the right situation, that we can somehow uh, we can somehow uh, cheat samsara, or we don't have a strong enough understanding of samsara, which is a very fundamental thought in in uh, the Eastern society, that life is a cycle, is a cycle that we live through again and again and again until uh, uh, eternity or, or there is no eternity there is just more samsara and it's not uh, it's not a pleasant thing it's not the kind of uh, you get a new chance you get a new life it's just kind of endless amount of going through the same the same procedure the th same things again and again because you don't know and I think that's that's very different in the in the Western society. We don't have that as a basis of our culture. We have a very linear perception of our lives, that uh, we are born, we develop, then there is a goal that we has to uh, have to achieve, and then it's over, and we can rest on our laurels and die happily or something like that. Yeah, well, maybe that's a good thing, uh, not because it's a good thing, but it it could be a nice ignorance, uh, a type of uh, avidya that you can. Just you know, not seek out knowledge or an understanding of samsara. That that this cyclical nature of life, and you know, because a Westerner would probably say, "Okay, samsara, I've already messed up this life, so I might as well mess up the rest of it." Because the next time around, I might I might fix it. I won't right now. Me as such won't be here to to understand who that or which I. I in the next life will become so I might as well just keep messing this one up because uh, obviously it was in the cards that I was supposed to mess this one up or or how does how do you look at samsara is there is there a way of penetrating this uh, this this beautiful wonder of of the cyclical nature of of figuring and understanding how all of these lives will pan out 
Well, I think uh, what we all, what we quite often miss is the uh, is the moral part of uh, of yoga philosophy, and it's very strong within uh, Buddhism. And when it comes to uh, this present life, how do you know that uh, you in your next life will have the opportunity to make it better? You might not even be born as a human being and certainly will certainly not be born as a human being if you just uh, if you just waste this life, if you don't evolve in this life, if you live like an animal in this life, you know, in your happy ignorance. You might be born as just that in your in your next life. Well, not to be so, ignorant, but to yeah. shed some light on what you're saying. Mm -hmm. um, let's say you were born as a as a grasshopper. Mm -hmm. You definitely hop a lot further than you would in this life. You definitely would get into one yoga position a little bit better than 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 maybe this body would allow you to. So, is there anything wrong with becoming a grasshopper uh, from a yoga perspective? Well, you don't have really the you don't have really the the possibility to uh, evolve very much as a as a grasshopper, unless you hop a lot in a very <laughs> sacred place. But wow. there is actually a story about that in uh, in Buddhism. There was uh, a pig. Someone was born as a pig, and he was chased by a dog. So he kept running around the stupa, which is a very holy sacred monument. And from uh, and in that way, the pig made lots of circum circumambulations around the sacred site, and he got a better rebirth. But um, I don't think we should count on dogs chasing us. So actually, as we see it in Buddhism, being born as a human being with all the freedoms and endowments and incredible possibilities that we have. There comes a certain responsibility with that. I agree. I mean, if you just look at this life as a samsara in and of itself with the the cyclical nature of making the same mistakes again and again and again, um, does your yoga practice help prevent you from making these same mistakes again and again and again? I mean, you have this concept of uh, practice Paksha Bhavanam, which is replace one thought with another. I mean, mm -hmm. should we find something to substitute our tendencies of and bad habits by replacing it with a mm -hmm. with a good habit? And and in light of yoga uh, or meditation or all of these, you know, understandings that you've acquired over these these last twenty five years, is there? Do you have any tips for us of how mm -hmm. to conduct and understand more of what is yoga on a daily, mm -hmm. on a daily level? Well, we often think of uh, meditation just as you know, sitting down on the cushion and closing our eyes and and listening to the breath and just you know calming the mind. But if we look at the tradition of practice, uh, the word for practice is actually bhavana. Uh, the word in Tibetan is gom, which just uh, means to become accustomed to something. So that also entailed training your mind. It's not just about uh, uh, pacifying your mind necessarily of having, you know, less thoughts or increasing the space between each thought. It's also going through a train of thought very consciously, like... Uh, like we do in, in Buddhism, one of the first 
trainings is actually counting our blessings. Look at how what you have, even if you have nothing in terms of material positions, you have a life, you have the freedom from pain, from enslavement, from stupidity, from uh, uh, being indoctrinated with like perverted thoughts and, and so on. So you actually have a lot of freedoms and opportunity just as you are. Uh, and most of the time we just forget that we have our little complaints or we don't get that this we don't get that so there are some things there are certain ways of thinking that we need to train our minds to think in that way otherwise we'll just easily forget it so that's also part of the practice is being very proactive when it comes to changing the mind and being analytical in in situations you know uh, is it really necessary to uh, to uh, uh, to be uh, dis uh, disappointed or or dissatisfied now, or is it just a reflection of how high I uh, set my my expectations and see everything in, in perspective of of what you have? There's certainly a way of of training, and that's that is also part of yoga. And I think a lot of the yoga industry it becomes it becomes kind of a part of the wellness industry and so I focus, I and me and it, it's devoid of, a, of the um, a moral imperative uh, and I think we can't see yoga apart from uh, containing a certain um, moral training as well that has always been a part of yoga mm, I I see that, and uh, I'm on board with those, with that train, that train of thought, and um, which brings me to you know, when you're discussing what is yoga, is you know, as as knowledgeable as one wants to be in reciting or, in retrospect, looking at how yoga has been brought either to the West or even back in the back in the day. Uh, of the Upanishads or the Bhagavad Gita or uh, uh, the list goes on, you you still have nothing but the mirror to look and gaze and look into. And you know when you're when you're trying to making sense out of everything from your own meager, weak perspective, and you're trying to attach some sort of sense to, like you say, this amazing gift. That everyone, when you strip it down, should be already uh, uh, not only thankful, but in just in the uttermost gratitude for that you did have parents that ultimately had brought you into this life based on their own reasons or uh, of of wanting you to be here, and you even coming in and of itself absolute uh, uh, miracle. Uh, but nonetheless, you know. Even though we've won this lottery, and lottery isn't just you know how many eggs there were and how many times uh, and where and when and how many millions of others you competed against on, on your way down the the channel, but still the space between sun and earth, just the fact, the the mere fact that there that life's even possible based on all of these uh, you know distance to and from. Uh, in in the universe, you know. Nonetheless, it's so hard to be grateful, and it seems like you say there's been an outpouring, irregardless of what people know about yoga, 
almost by default, people are saying, yoga is good for you. And if you ask any of them, well, do you know yoga? Many or nine out of 10 of those people that have not tried it, but still say it's good for you. For some reason, the word yoga seems to resonate deeply, even into the the, the unexperienced, never have tried yoga uh, human being. There's still a calling. It's almost like, you know, uh, that there is a universal sound like om that is uh, that is resonating in everyone, almost like a a coming home. Do you think everyone um, is seeking yoga, what, or are they based on bad, you know, uh, times of you know releasing and mo removing yourself from your own awareness and you know detaching f your mind from body and becoming very mind-like? Do you think yoga is calling people back to be? as yoga is called in the in the dictionary as you know a, a union of connecting this mind and body or do you think it's a calling or do you think um do you think we'll ever get there that people will look at it for more or for that which it actually is uh, a reminder to to just be your own darn self i think uh i think every society has their methods of uh, integrating people into a greater whole. Um, so it could be through through various methods. It doesn't necessarily has to be through yoga. It could be. Uh, it could be. Well, it has traditionally often been through religion, that you are connected with a with a greater whole or with your ancestors or with a certain society but anyway something that is greater than you that makes you feel whole and uh, a lot of this integration is expressed to some through some kind of psychophysical exercise through a ritual or through dancing through music through storytelling something like that and uh, as I see it, I think <clears throat> in the West we have lacked this since the fall of the of the church and the <laughs> we could maybe say the failure of failure of uh, religion in our society. So I think for many of us, yoga is a way of it just means a way of bringing us back, of integrating us once again. But it not it's not necessarily the case for everyone. Maybe someone else has a has a different way of connecting. But <clears throat> I think it's a very deeply rooted human need to uh, to connect. But it can happen in in different ways. It just happens to be that yoga has become so accessible to us at this moment. Yeah, I was watching. Um, uh Actually, I correct myself. I was listening to another podcast about, you know, when you go to an old age home, a hospice, and you're, there's certain people when that moment comes that the individual that's about to pass away at an old age is about to take their last breath. And usually in that moment, one knows that that moment has come. So there's, someone there to monitor, document how and in which circumstance the last breath took place. And often it takes place in a moment of anxiety and you see the individual about to leave this earth going, oh! 
with a look, with these wide open eyes, and that look on their face is like they never opened the account of life. Instead of a calm, resonating, okay, now, now the time has come. So the statistics say that there is very few percentage that have that calm, now the time has come. Most people who are in that situation have a very anxious look. Do you think people prior to that moment, minus 50 years, at the age of 40, 50, are considering at all the importance or the necessity to hone in on a body-mind awareness such that you can prevent to the best of your ability or promote to the best of your ability the capacity in which you've been given and that is is to be vital to be aware to be compassionate mm. to also be forthcoming to be forgiving to be considerate and to be quiet and to listen is it possible or do we have to find these things out uh, in the last 10 seconds? Well, I hope we don't have to find them out in the last 10 seconds because then it's really too late. But actually one of the first things that we do contemplate in Buddhism is the impermanence and the impermanence of this human life. So we do contemplate death a lot and it suddenly puts our lives into a perspective. Uh, it's not pleasant to contemplate one's own death and suddenly in our society we try to avoid it all the time but I think it's necessary to to know that our lives are impermanent in order to see it in the right perspective that makes us do the right things and make the right choices because in the end what 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 does matter in the end what can you take with you from from this life nothing nothing no relationships and no possessions but maybe you can have at least have a, a quiet moment at the at the end of life maybe you have no regrets maybe you have uh, maybe you take your last breath with the knowledge that you've done your best to help to make the world a little bit better to uh, uh, to understand to show compassion, to be open. And we should know that these practices of uh, compassion, of generosity, is not just a matter of being a better person, of being a better person in, in society or in relation to some kind of God who will judge us in the end. No, it's really the practices that make us overcome this entrapment of the ego, this belief that we are this little island, this little uh, independently existing self. And that little independently existing self will be very, very lonely in the end when it realizes that it doesn't even exist. So the whole point of doing these practices of uh, compassion is to uh, integrate into a bigger whole to see that I am no different from you. 
and I could not even exist without all you other guys. I am here by the grace of other people who have cared for me, who have helped me, who produce my food and my clothes and uphold society, who shows me love. So we're all part of this uh, interconnected whole and uh, when we start to uh, let go of this isolated ego we can we can rest in the nature of mind and that nature of mind is is said that is what we are left with at the moment of death when everything falls apart our bodies our thoughts our concepts our loved ones our possessions everything falls apart and all you're left with is just this ground of your mind and if you have been able to encounter that in life there's going to be no fear at the time of death because you're already familiar with it well then maybe the answer of what is yoga is encountering and encompassing something that's greater than yourself um, whatever that might be for you. Mm. And, you know, when you mentioned, mention, you know, the yoga of love and compassion, you know, this bhakti yoga, and the different forms of yoga, in the West we're always like, well, what to choose? Should I choose that? Um, we even choose our yoga studio. It's like, or we choose our yoga mat, or we choose, we're, we're just choosing all the time. We choose our favorite kind of this mm. versus our least favorite kind of that. Um, again, you know, dualistic, you know, thinking of right versus wrong, this versus that. Um, I'm thinking, you know, back to the person that's not rushing in Kathmandu and back to, you know, a city full of millions of people without any traffic lights. Um, how, since we are in the West and since most people are probably listening to this in a, in, from a Western standpoint, um, how how to choose not to choose and along the way make a choice how to choose not to choose and make a choice about what about about not choosing I mean ultimately you have to somewhere you, you know uh, if you call it adaptation in the west you definitely have to adapt whether you like it or not we are, even though we're in Norway and things work a bit differently here, we are still in a survival of the fittest. Mm. There is still a lot of, you know, smoke and mirrors. And in other countries, there might just be mirrors and less smoke or more smoke and less mirrors. Mm. But there's, there's a lot of me versus you, not only this mm. versus that going on. So it's like in the me versus you, then there's the me versus me. Um, am I good enough? Uh, and when I'm in that position, uh, for example, on a yoga mat, am I good enough? Um, why aren't things happening more quickly? So, you know, the question, I guess, or the, the comment is how, when we're discussing what is yoga, how can, how can my understanding of yoga ground itself enough that I, that I don't think too much, but that I, I just, I dive into something that will allow me to find the keyhole before I open the door to have a place of entry 
if anyone in their right mind is going to understand what is yoga, then they need, like in all other cases, you don't have a second chance to make a first impression. How do you acquire a proper first impression of yoga? Should one just, wherever they are, close their eyes and find their breath? Or should they seek out and entrust that uh, some Barbie doll at some shopping mall is going to tell them, Hi everybody and welcome to this vinyasa class today. The subject will be personal love. And I want you to feel just like Marge Simpson. I mean, it's almost like Marge Simpson yoga. There's not very much Patanjali going on there. Or wh where is the first step for the person, which are many, many millions of people, where can they take this first step to, to at least go down a path of understanding what is yoga? I think it's, yeah, it's suddenly difficult these days because we're in this shitstorm, if I may say so, of impressions, of commercials, of uh, we are bombarded at every moment of uh, things that wants to steal our attention. So it might actually be good to go back to these old philosophies. And we have one uh, very central con concept in yoga that is ca called renunciation. Renunciation, what does it mean? Well, in the ancient days, it, it, it meant to uh, abandon your family and your possessions and, and take, up, take up a life of poverty and seeking wisdom. So in, the, in our contemporary society, it might simply be to keep focused on what is really important as opposed to what is not important. And it's not important what kind of yoga mat you have or what kind of uh, car you drive or what kind of smoothie you drink or what kind of Barbie doll is teaching you a yoga class. So we have to have the, the courage to make these choices and also go against, for us, I think really being a yoga, yogi means to go against what capitalism expects of us. We're expected to be consumers in every aspect of life, even, even spiritual consumers. So just keep your mind of what is really important. What is it that resonates with you truly? When, when do you feel the, the spaciousness, the openness, the, um, the fullest potential? When do you feel generous? When do you feel open? When do you feel loved? And just stick with that and, and forget the rest. That is renunciation, you know, find your way and, and clear away what is not important. And that might be a training in itself. Well, let's just consider that for a second. Let's say that one goes to a yoga class and just doesn't resonate at all with how that's all set up. And it's not because of the Barbie doll and shopping mall concept. Maybe it's just that they even went to the grooviest place ever. But there was something in their mindset that just didn't allow them to let go. It just wasn't the time. But they found more letting go in just going home and sitting alone whilst their whole family had gone to bed and reading a book. Is that a type of renunciation uh, that would lead that person to discover yoga in its connective sense all on their own without having to attend or, or dive into anything that was more, you know, learned from, you know, the days of yesteryear? 
is is yoga possible to do without doing yoga absolutely i think there are so many types of yoga like you have the jnana yoga that is not involved in physical yoga or going to a studio at all you could learn a lot just by you know dedicating yourself to uh, self-investigation or expand your mind through learning you know learn some other perspective of life some other perspective of reality learn about your own perspective of reality how limited is it how is it called how is it colored by your culture and upbringing and try to break away from that that can be that can be a kind of heavy duty training to see through your own standing and your own uh, concepts that can be a very uplifting you can have your epiphanies when you when you try to see things from a completely different perspective try to stand in someone else's shoes and look at the look at the world in their ways i would absolutely say that that is a valid form of uh, of yoga um, this transpecting this witnessing this empathizing with uh, uh seeing how others both conduct themselves and how they grow from their their own practice i mean you know, being an onlooker is one thing, but being a partaker is another. Um, and if you become very good at the practice of only witnessing, um, when is it time to, to stop looking outwards and to start looking inwards? Is it when you do get sick or is it when you um, are suddenly without a job or lose your partner? Why? Is it such in the West that people, when they discover yoga, often, not all the time, but often, it's because someone had gone through something so damn difficult in their mm. adult life that they finally think, okay, again, you know, I don't know why, but I think yoga is going to be the answer, mm. even without knowing what it is. Mm. Um, when, when is optimally the best time in the course of a lifetime to... Uh, set off on this this journey of either understanding what yoga is, recognizing what your yoga is, or actually not knowing at all and just giving it a whirl. When, when, when should one do it? Only in times of strife and suffering? Again, we're back to suffering. Mm. There's a lot of suffering going on here. I can't really say what is the right time for uh, anyone, but... Often in the time of distress, when uh, the structures of uh, our lives falls apart, that's often when we see through things, when we see that, okay, I had built my whole life of this like fleeting, uh, uh, fleeting ground. You know, all I've been trying to do all my life is to make something solid out of all these fleeting processes that are going around uh, um, around me and when they fall apart which they have to do at some time or other then we're suddenly left with uh, with nothing but of course we're left with ourselves and and all our questions so that's more often than not that's the time when we seek yoga when we when we seek some answers and we seek we seek some some other kind of safety. Okay, so if the safety was not within the external structures, within what I had tried to build up around me, can I at least find something within myself? 
And that's in a way exactly what the what the uh, shramanas, what the yogis of the old did. They saw through that, that my, my family structure, my society, my assigned role in society is not going to be a solution for me. I'm going to seek some other kind of insight that will liberate me. I'm going to see through this whole setup of uh, samsara. I'm going to see through my own concepts, my language, my uh, society, everything I believed in. I'm going to look for um, a higher kind of realization. Yeah, but when you when you look beyond, looking beyond, and you find a certain solace, a place in you where you you're finally discovering, okay, yes finally now i'm not just telling myself i want to be here i can feel that i'm i'm truly here i'm adhering to something beyond me recognizing it this is this is it wow are you then meant to the day after you know send an sms to a good friend and say <laughs> i found it or you know when you think what is yoga is yoga keeping your mouth shut or or should we should we somehow share our secrets of the trade should we there seems to be a lot of you know what is yoga nowadays it's like it's definitely telling everyone that you either attended a class or that you had a an epiphany about something that you finally discovered that the universe had aligned and and you know with all these other you know one hit wonder slogans of the modern day mm. you know uh this is my tribe i found my tribe i found my you know um i found my people uh mm. i found my, my my calling should we just kind of like uh keep it simple stupid stupid and just just shut the heck up well i think when you have the the moment where you think you've got it or you have these like answers i think then you're in the danger of just building another structure around yourself that is maybe just a more spiritual structure and you've just exchanged your old ego for a more spiritual ego so i think yeah i think sometimes it's it's too much of this self investigation and i think the what i what i like about uh, about buddhism about the the tradition i follow that you 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 try to divert the the focus from yourself or finding something within yourself and you try to focus on everybody else really just try and help you know just try and do just try and act in a in a generous uh wholesome some way and in that way, maybe the answer is to be more connected and be less isolated, less within yourself, less trying to find some kind of uh, uh, essence within yourself and, and go more for the, the connection. I hear what you're saying. So, you know, the modern day spiritual junkie uh, would have a lot to learn by immersing themselves uh, on a a bench that doesn't exist in Kathmandu because no one's sitting and waiting nor in a hurry. Everyone is just gallivanting in a certain state of peace. Um, does this does the spiritual junkie also create uh, such a dependency on being spiritual that they they lose sight of where the path 
had began, since a lot of yogis, at least that are practicing yoga, are very fixated on on the body, on the positions, on the asana, on the smoothie, on the ingredients, that they also, um, at one point, are going to feel the burn of um, of losing touch of their own, even Western or modern day, or this day reality, that they're very stuck uh, on on the practice and not the the actual sensation of, of being a yogi. Well, we, as human beings, we all we do is making concepts, and we're pretty good at making new concepts. And uh, what is spirituality? We cling onto this world like it was a reality. You know what? What does it even mean? There is no definition of what spirituality means but I think we often have some kind of vague idea about it that it's not it's not something that is common or mundane but who says spirituality is not common and mundane you know just help someone just be nice just smile at someone just just do something that is uh, that is not for your own benefit just go through some, uh, how about a bit of tapas? How about a bit of resistance, going through some hardships? That's also a part of yoga. I think we're often under this illusion that uh, when we're on the spiritual journey, everything is going to be so pleasant. It's going to be as we expect it to be. No, in, maybe it's going through something rather painful. I see what you mean, but I, I still can't get around the fact that, you know, even as we're doing now, or I'm doing at this very second, I'm formulating, contemplating, expressing a, a certain thought um, based on what I feel right here and now, which will definitely change in a minute from now. Is it so, are we are we hindered by our ability to think uh, that it, it sort of constricts our ability to breathe, which then restricts our ability to cleanse, which then restricts our ability for the nerves to let go of certain musculature groups that create a tension in our body, which then again yields a certain, you know, barrier to the ability to think clearly based on all of these processes that are very interdependent on one another? Is it, should we have not been given the right to speak so much? Would we be better yogis if we, we couldn't formulate a thought and express it? I think we're not inhibited by our ability to think, but I think it's interesting to look at uh, uh, how do how do we value thinking? You know, if you if you if you look at the the Eastern perspective, the thought process is just like another bodily function. It's actually like one of the senses: the eyes see, the ears hear, and the mind produces thought. It thinks. It's still part of uh, prakriti. It's just a bodily function to think. Uh, but I think <laughs> in the West, we value our thinking too much. Okay. We see it as something very precious and valuable. And we often think that, uh, well, if I don't think, I'll just be like a vegetable. And we don't realize the, the, the fact that the nature of mind is uh, clarity, is this luminous clarity, which is not empty, is not an absence, 
is just a potential for anything to happen, to have clarity, to see something really clearly. Yeah, I, 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 I like I like the, the concept. I just know that the, back to the samskaras and this habitual, you know, nature of the average human being, we we rest on our own laurels instead of investigating new ones, mm -hmm. and in doing so, we we don't have this kind of everyday or this every moment clarity. When someone calls out our name on the street, we almost react like if it were copy and paste in the very same fashion. We even gasp the same breath as we remove and turn the shoulder outwards to then gaze. And also, based on creature comforts, we say, yeah, well, hello, Mr. Thompson. <laughs> and I don't see you here very often. Yes, and it's very beautiful weather. And um, by the way, you know, how did it go? Uh, on your 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 speech last night, because I you know I saw on Facebook that you had a you had a big night coming up. Um, do we find clarity in having to adapt to the nature of of habit and acclimating ourselves into what others expect, or can we can we? Is, is yoga in what is yoga? Is it the ability to remove yourself from certain situations, certain people, certain habits, to then find a clarity? And then the next time you're in that situation, you can act upon it uniquely and less copy and paste-like. Mm -hmm. Where is the division in establishing a clear clarity and not a repetitive clarity? Mm -hmm. I think there are, it's very interesting what you're saying. There's actually different schools, you know, uh, who addresses this in, in different ways. So so one, one school would say that it doesn't matter what you do as long as you have awareness, you know. It doesn't matter if you repeat yourself a million times because you have awareness, you know that's what I'm doing. I'm just, you know, uh, playing along with what is expected of me. I'm not hurting anyone. It's a good yogic value not to hurt anyone and not confuse them. And, and then you have, of course, the left-handed school that try to go against what everyone expects all the time that will, you know, eat shit and drink alcohol and act outrageous. You have the kind of crazy wisdoms who will, who will use the expectations of society deliberately you know, and, and go against them and uh, demonstrate for people that uh, what you think, what you expect is not the only possibility. And uh, probably also use it as a, as a training for themselves to see that it's not really any difference whether I do this or that. Well, in that light, um, I think it might be fair uh, that it really doesn't make any difference what also, Ellen and Ellis think about what yoga is uh, in our light, because I mean, there'll be a lot of uh, you know continued um, series on what is yoga in a more specific sort of title-like manner, as we'll continue down this uh, journey of the the Yoga Syndicate uh, podcast series. Um, but for now, I think um, we'll leave it to the listener to. Uh, to to sort of refine and perhaps redefine uh, what they either know or don't know or should seek out in terms of uh, 
maybe a few things that were were mentioned here. But in in closing, I'd like to ask you, Ellen, um, um, if you were to have this whole talk over again, we probably um, we'd probably approach it, and we'd probably go down a path that would be very different to this, which sort of brings a light to what yoga is, and that is is that it's ever changing, and it as much as you know specifically about yoga and what the so-called yoga scripture and the the different walks and the different branches of yoga, both from a Buddhist and from a Hindi and from a Western perspective, would lend to it. All of that is just a sort of mumbo-jumbo in terms of what yoga is in this light of this podcast. And, you know, if you could just summarize what yoga is um, before we let the listener go and regurgitate uh, and digest what we, we brought to the table, what what is yoga for you in summary, Ellen? Oh, what is yoga for me in uh, in summary? Uh, I think for me, yoga is a map more than anything. That's what it has meant to me in in uh, in my life to see that uh, um, what I think is just my uh, personal. Uh, ideas and my personality is actually something that is uh, a product of my culture and my upbringing and it's not so special as I thought it was so I can use yoga as as a map to um, disentangle the mind and and see myself and orient myself and see that there are many many versions of reality and I don't need to be stuck in one of them. And that that includes also not stuck in the, the the physical reality or the physical fact that you can um, you can do and I would I would almost call it a performance. You can perform or conduct uh, and get your body into certain positions that uh, that. Uh, a very good portion of this entire planet cannot do but still you know not weighing that up versus what goes on inside of your head and your heart when you do yoga is it so important to be able to do what you can do with your body in a yoga perspective is is that what yoga is all about is is being able to accomplish these different series of ashtanga um, to a T and with perfection or is that is that also yoga or is that not is that not what yoga is i don't think it's very important to master uh, handstands and lotus poses if, if and backbends if, if that's what you what you mean um, at this point in my, in my life i'm much more um, i'm much more interested in the internal shape shifting actually uh, and that has more to do with the uh, with the subtle body and what your your mind can do with your body. You can uh, you can totally you can turn into uh, to anything at your wish, and it has nothing to do with the uh, external shape. But you need a certain uh, amount of body awareness, I think, in order to do that. But you can totally work with different levels of your body without ever putting your leg behind your head. I see, and uh, and in and in closing, you know, in regards to your map, is this map like a treasure map? Is it something that 
is wishful and that we hope to find, but it's also, like you say, like life, perhaps somewhat of an illusion, or is it is the map that you're creating for yourself in what yoga is for you, um, is it bringing you to, to, to new places? Is it showing you how to get to these new places? Uh, is it one that you use a lot of, um, uh, do you do you lose use a lot of color in and try not to go over the lines that you you're you're crafting very carefully this map for to both inspire your students and others that uh, that, that that have the have the opportunity to learn from you or is it is it more of a personal this is my map and your map is your map or you know, tell me a little bit more about the map in, in closing here. Mm. I think my map is, is getting clearer and clearer for me. And I find my teaching is, is oriented around this map. And I find it's easier to teach because I, I have a map. And there are lines on my map. There are borders on my map. Uh, I might cross the borders sometimes, but at least I know when I'm crossing the border. So for me, my uh, my map, is very useful when it comes to uh, to teaching and uh, I think it's also good to orient yourself um, in relation to the map because the path that you you're going is not always comfortable so you know that okay here I'm going through some rough terrain but it's gonna be better once I cross this hill and uh, you you keep that in mind so so you don't uh, always adapt the the map to to your needs but you you kind of you follow the map well we'll leave it at that uh we'll follow the map and um we'll see where this journey takes us as we now uh in closing uh would like to just remind you to both find your paper, find your pen, find your heart, find your good intentions, and start constructing and drawing out a beautiful map to define, in fact, what yoga is for you. Thank you, and do stay tuned as we will continue the series of the Yoga Syndicate uh, as we keep defining the lines and the spaces on our map.